Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a very, very exciting panel today with um, some fun announcements coming. Um, I'm J. Clara Chan. I cover digital media at The Hollywood Reporter, and I'm joined here with Michael Lang, the CEO of Pixel United. Great to be here. All right, I want to touch directly on the name of this panel topic because I think we're in a great period of time for video game IP, a renaissance of sorts. Um, and I'm curious, from your perspective, you've, you've done this for a while, this is, you know, you're no stranger to this industry. How have you seen the industry developed in the past couple of years when it comes to building out these sort of massive franchises? Yes, yeah, so uh, my sense is it's, it's gone through a bit of an evolution, right? When when games first started being used as IP and other media, it was pretty derivative and in some cases not authentic. It was just trying to kind of take advantage of they knew a big audience of a particular IP, let's just put something together and, and make it work. And there were some examples that worked, there were other examples that did not work. Uh, and I think what's happened over the last couple years in particular, you know, with some of the uh, uh, executions like Last of Us and Arcane, You've seen a real effort on terms of A, getting strong quality content people uh, from Hollywood to, to take those, those brands, but also that they were kind of uh, understood and, and committed to what that brand represented in the audiences that love those brands. And so as a result, I think the executions have been a lot stronger. And I, my instinct is that's only gonna continue even more so as we go far, forward. I mean, as, as I look at the industry, uh, there are more people playing mobile and console games, PC games, than there are watching television and film. And, wow. and so you're just going to see more and more adaptation of that brand and content as we go forward. And again, you know, like we've had on, on this particular execution, great quality uh, content people from traditional media coming in and, and, and leveraging that IP in, in a more positive way. Why, when it comes to the Hollywood side of things, you mentioned more executives or more studios are sort of willing to look at game IP. I, why do you think that is the case? I think sometimes maybe outsiders will look at gaming and think, oh, this is a very niche community, which it definitely is not. Right. But, but why is Hollywood sort of changing its mind in that well, way? A couple things. First of all, you know, we all like to think about the gaming business as fairly niche segment of consumer, but it's actually incredibly broad based upon what the game is, right? So in our business, Pixel United, we have a, uh, a casual business and a social casino business where the target market are 45 and above male and females, and, uh, you know, very equal 50-50 split. And, and, and then and clearly in, like, our, our games like Raid, Plarium, and Midcore, you have more of a, say, 20, 25 and above male, more dominated, but still a pretty significant female audience. So that's a very broad audience that you could go create content around, right, and, and develop that. I think number two, and anyone here watched the Academy Awards last night, there was, they were talking about it, it's just really, really difficult to be successful in the film and television or episodic digital series you know, without some kind of content, some kind of brand that you can resonate, uh, you know, stakes are much, much higher than even in the gaming world and to be successful. And so if you have something that has an established brand, an audience to it, it just makes it a little bit easier to hopefully uh, build upon that. And one of, the, one of the interesting things is that when we were developing this particular show, we wanted to create something that was authentic and real to the core Raid audience. I'm not so sure how many people in here play Raid, 
But uh, get a yes. raise of and hands? so you know <laughs> that if we had done something that was different or something that they thought was not pure to what we were trying to do, it would have been rejected, clearly rejected all over social media and would have killed killed the show. But secondarily, we wanted still something that was open enough or more accessible that potentially people that had never played the game or heard of it, similar like what we've you know have seen with Last of Us, that there might be interest to, to from just a content standpoint. And so again, trying to thread that needle is not easy in the content business. But again, I, I think we've tried to do that here, and I think that's what everyone is really trying to do uh, using gaming IP. Yeah, you mentioned a show. I'm not sure if everyone in the room knows exactly what you're talking about. Oh, I'm sorry. So it's typical. I, I'm <laughs> saying things. Yes. Yeah, so so uh, let me just give everyone a background. So over two and a half years ago, so this isn't a, like a last minute thing we've come up with. That we've been working on this two and a half years. We decided that we wanted to take the raid Shadow Legends brand and game and try to extend that out into an original content, animation being the most likely way to do that. And we, we did three things with this show as we developed the show. Number one is, again, we brought on world-class people from Hollywood to help us in regards to the Eric Rollman and Jay and people from that world that, that would come in and help not just create the animation, but actually the scripts, because there was really very little backstory for all those that have ever played Raid behind the game itself. Number two is we wanted to do something that the core studio that developed the game for Raid Shadow Legends was heavily involved in. That this wasn't like, okay, they threw it over the wall and never to be seen again. Uh, many of you may not know this, but Raid Shadow Legends has been developed by a, a world-class studio based in Ukraine, in Kharkiv, Ukraine. And those 800 people have been continuing, even with everything that's going on in Ukraine, many of them have, some of them have left the country, been able to leave. If you're male, you're not allowed to leave the country because of martial law around, around the ability for male to, men to leave. They've been working on this game night and day through all of this crisis, in some cases with you know, air raids going off you know, for them. And so this is really a, a lot of ways a tribute to them that they could be involved in this and help develop that. And the third thing we decided to do was to make it accessible to people through a free platform. We, we didn't want to go create something that was immediately behind the wall that you have to be a subscriber for, and that this is something from day one people could access and see and learn more about the content as part of that. And so this has been a long effort for two and a half years, and uh, it's been a bit of a labor of love. And uh, we're very excited now. We're getting closer and closer to being able to release the series. There'll be 10 five-minute episodes of, of, uh, of content that will be released throughout, you know, starting in May, throughout the rest of the summer. And then the plan is, based upon that, to launch other series or other kinds of uh, executions if it goes well and people like it. So if you missed it, you're, if you're a Raid fan, you're getting a limited animated series, which is awesome, and it's going to be free to watch. So... I think it's a win-win in everyone's book here. I, we're going to delve into the creative process a little bit later, but before we do that, um, I, if you could just give me some broad strokes, what is, what, at what point did you realize, okay, we need to transform this game into an animated series? Uh, you know, why, why service the fans in this, in this way? So the, the game Raid has had over 75 million downloads throughout its history, a billion dollars in revenue, and we hear it every day. Like people are like, hey, this is great, but we want more. We want to see what's the story, what's the background around these, these characters than just the game itself. And so that was a piece of it. 
Number two is for those that are in the gaming business, you'll realize that uh, brand and franchise is becoming even more and more critical. It's getting tougher and tougher to break through new content, partially because everyone's doing such a good job of keeping their core customers, but also with many of the changes in marketing and privacy changes and so forth, it's really raised the bar now. And so we felt this would be a great brand extension to maintain that franchise and build that out over time beyond just continuing to do the game itself. The third thing is we're, we're trying some very unique things here where we're gonna uh, bring parts of the show into the game itself. So they're gonna be characters that are in the show that will be in, 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 ingrained within the show. There'll be ways to watch the video and the, and the episodes within the game itself. And we think that's the first step of of, you know, again, metaverse, if you think about that, it's really bringing oh various mediums together in one aspect, and that's what, you know, in a very small step, what we're trying to do in the game itself as, as, we, as we create the content outside of that. Okay, I think we've appropriately what these people's appetites. I think there's enough talk. We have a teaser for the animated series that we're gonna queue up right now, so here. Well, that was fun. I wonder, do you, you think there's anything else you want to show this crowd? Yeah, so for just this crowd, because this is our first release of the trailer, so it's going to be out now. It's probably all over YouTube by the time we get out of here. But for only this crowd, we'd like to show uh, a couple scenes from episode three. So this is in the show itself, farther down. But again, please keep it to yourselves. Just tell people it looks pretty cool. Let's not, you know. And uh, just gives you a little bit more of a view of what we're trying to do beyond the trailer itself. So again, you can see we're, we're trying to provide this at a much higher level than typical animation you might see and, and quality music and, and everything around that. Uh, but again, doing it in a much shorter form, five-minute episodes, which we know won't really tell the story, hopefully whet people's appetite for more. Uh, but again, create accessibility for people that, that, you know, this is something that you'll be able to go see uh, and, and hopefully continue to, to build what we think is a very special brand and IP. Okay, as much as I have loved doing this one-on-one -on -one with you, I want to bring out some of the creatives who have been do. involved in this show. So let's welcome onto the stage Jay Oliva, the founder and CEO of Lex and Otis, the animation studio. And we will also be joined by Derek Douglas, the head of video games at CAA. All right, Jay, I'm turning to you directly because we just watched that teaser and sneak peek. Um, describe your role in the creation of this animation, animated series and um, you know, how you were brought into the process. Sure. Um, so I am the executive producer as well as the director and um, also the animation studio that, that did this. Uh, we did all the pre-production and, and uh, post-production on this show. Uh, and also I was the one who, well, Eric Rollman came to me and said, what do you know about Raid Shadow Legends? And I'm like, I think I know it. And I went home and I played it. And then I, and he said, Can, do you have a pitch for it? So then I, I uh, came to him the next week and I said, this is what I would do with it, and then the rest is history. Without spoiling too much, can you give me like a short synopsis of what the series is um, compared to what people know of as the Raid video game? 
So what we did is at the at its very beginning, I wanted to focus on the starting characters from the game because everybody starts off with Elhane, uh, Thel, Gaelic, or and Kale. So I wanted to focus upon those characters and and the, and how they met and their backstories, as well as some new characters that are also in the game. Um, that's really just the, the trying to find a backstory for all of the characters that you play with in the game, and and giving and finding a riveting story to keep them kind of uh, uh, engaged to the audience. Yeah. So, what's sort of the central conflict that's driving the story? Oh, okay. So, the central conflict—it's—it's it's, at, at its core because it's called the Call of the Arbiter. The idea is that um, each of these each of these heroes are being called on a mission, and and whether they are called by uh, the evil side or the good side, and that um, the, the quest is of of them all of their individual stories coming together as a team to fight the the big evil. All right, we've got action, we've got role-playing, we've got fantasy, all the good things people love in, in an action movie and a video game adaptation. Um, but to that point, um, maybe, Michael, you can speak to this as well. We've seen a lot of adaptations recently. I think the, the one that's on top of mind for me is Dungeons & Dragons, which had its premiere here at South by a few days ago. Um, when, when thinking of making the adaptation of Raid, how did you think about sort of differentiating it from some of the other games adaptations we've seen? Um, well, uh, I'm not so sure differentiated because we're trying our best to, to do what around the raid product. I think clearly we wanted to make it differentiated from what the game is itself, right? We wanted something more, that had more depth and uniqueness to it. Again, you know, as I said before, I think the key thing is to be authentic. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you all that are fans of Raid are going to see through it. And if it's not real or something that really is, is related to those characters in a meaningful way, I think it'll be rejected pretty quickly. And so clearly that was important to us. And I think the other big element is, is quality. You know, again, us from a, a brand management standpoint, really controlling the quality to make sure that everything that we put into this is going to be at the level that we feel good about. And that's lucky with guys like Jay to come on in and do that. But again, uh, the people from our studio in Ukraine were very, very involved in this project from a brand management standpoint. They provided input, counsel, where they thought maybe things were going off a little bit. They tried to rein it back in. And uh, I think that, that kind of partnership is what maybe makes this a little different than other experiences uh, that have been done before. I want to get to the point of authenticity in these adaptations a little bit later, but before we do, um, <clears throat> Jay, when when you were coming up with the storyline, I know we saw some tweets in that teaser, a lot of fan interest. How much uh, input or inspiration did you take from sort of the fan base around this game in coming up with the storyline? Oh, what's funny is that when I first started playing the game, I came in a little late. Um, the game was incredibly hard. Uh, I had to watch a lot of content creators, um, especially like Ash, for example, and uh, and a lot of times they would be talking about the things that they like about the game, what they don't like, and and how a lot of them were wanting to know more about these characters. And so when I was p coming up with what to pitch, it was really about understanding it from a fan's point of view. Because I mean, my whole career, I've been doing this for almost 30 years. I've done Marvel, DC, He-Man. I've done everything. I've adapted a lot of things in my career. And I always approach it from a fan's point of view. Because I, I'm the first fan who's going to take the script and adapt it. So I wanted something that's authentic. Because you know the fans can tell if it's not authentic. They'll, they'll, they can tell that whoever's adapting this is looking at it from a lens from a Hollywood executive. But for me, because um, I deep dived into the game, like hardcore, and I, I, you know, 
I tried to understand at its core why do I like about about this as well as looking at the content creators and hearing what they say what they like and dislike about the game and then try to add that into the story like what can we do with these characters that can satisfy uh, you know what the fans want and what the fans want to see because the cool thing is that the the studio at Plarium they created these amazing designs this amazing gameplay this, this world that is kind of an open canvas and it was kind of fun because I'm used to being in a world where okay Spider-Man is only this or Superman can only do this and and if you don't do this then I'm gonna hate you or whatever you do and so going into this franchise with only a very limited scope in terms of what has been established lore wise was really exciting and and to come up with new ways of because of, of, I'm a huge um, fantasy I love reading novels and Tolkien and all that stuff so you know cherry-picking things that I like here and there as well as more modern storytellings was really kind of appealing. And, and, and luckily, Plarium was very open to that. I'd pitch them, like, what about this? What if we took this? What if we had a scene like in Aliens or this and that? And they were like, sure, let's try it. So which was very, it was great really working with them. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, you kind of touched on this a bit, but I, sometimes there, I feel like there might be a fine line between you want to help you know, service the fans because this is really for them, but everyone wants something different sometimes and it's hard to please everyone. So how do you both stick to your creative vision while also making sure this feels authentic and good to, yeah. to existing fans? Um, it's funny because I adapted uh, um, The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller and um, that was something that, was, that I loved as a kid and adapting it, everybody said it was impossible to adapt. But what I told them when I did all my press junkets, I said, this is different than if Frank Miller had adapted it. This is through the lens of Jay Oliva as a 10-year-old. And so Raid Shadow Legends, even though this is through kind of my vision, is a vision through the fact that I'm, I'm a fan at, at its core. I, I love these characters. I love this world. And I wanted to do something. I have a very set skills that can adapt things. And I wanted to use those skills to create something that I think the fan base as a whole can like, as well as people who don't play the game and, and be kind of very open to it. So that way, even if you don't play the game, you can still understand what's going on and still be riveted by the, the storylines. Yeah. Um, turning to Derek, I am sure you've seen a lot of adaptations, some perhaps more successful than others. And I know everyone on this panel sort of touched on this idea of authenticity, but what exactly does that mean? It's one of those buzzwords I think gets thrown around a lot, but what are sort of telltale signs for you working on kind of both sides of the Hollywood and game uh, industry uh, spectrum, I suppose? What are some hallmarks of, of things that don't kind of fall in, in, in that boat? Yeah, I think uh, early on when we saw Mike sort of referenced uh, early adaptations in the game space, and I think those lacked authenticity. And I think a lot of times it starts with the creative. Uh, and when I say creative, I mean an individual, uh, oftentimes the writer or the producer, that actually loves that piece of content and wants to make sure that piece of content goes from where it started as a game to something that, they, that fans would be proud of and that they'd be proud of working on. And I think that's actually been kind of the sea change that we've seen over the last 20 years. It's similar to what we saw in comic books. Um, when comic book movies started hitting theaters back in like 77 with Superman, you saw some level of authenticity, but you saw a lot of people that just didn't understand what made those characters and those universes tick. Uh, and so you got a lot of bad stuff. You got a, a, a lot of um, low budget stuff that missed the mark. And then you had Batman by Tim Burton, and that was a good movie, but ultimately it was a Tim Burton movie, not necessarily a Batman movie. And you really have to look at sort of Spider-Man uh, and X-Men 
sort of in the early 2000s, where you see the creatives that, that managed that, directed that, wrote it, they were big fans of that IP, and they knew the fundamental DNA. And that's something that we're seeing in games now. People have grown up with games, um, and they're fans of it, and they understand them, and they understand that they have value. And I don't think you saw that 10, 15 years ago. I think uh, studio executives, uh, producers, and directors looked at it as like, okay, this is a thing that we can adapt and may maybe make money off of, but they didn't see the value in the IP. But now people growing up with it see that value, enjoy the, the core IP, and they want to be true to it. When it comes to reaching new audiences, um, I feel like there's kind of this balance between, again, we've touched on this a bit, but you know, reaching the people who are already existing fans of a, of a piece of IP, but also using an adaptation as an opportunity to bring in new fans. Um, and sometimes they're not necessarily conflicting, but they, they can be on sort of opposite sides there. Um, I guess maybe both Michael and, and Derek, how how are studios thinking about balancing these needs? And as a game studio specifically, um, how important was it for you to also make sure this show was uh, accessible to, to yeah. new audiences? It's really, really tough. If it was easy, everybody could do it, right, Derek? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the actual best example of who's really, really good at this uh, is outside is, is Pixar, right? Mm -hmm. if, you, if you think about a Pixar film, you know, 80% of it is for that core audience, but there's enough in there for 20% for the parents or adults to say, wow, this is worth my time and, and want to go do that. And I think you started seeing that then with a lot of the comic book that were mm -hmm. successful. And so in, in this, you know, just using that same ratio, that's the way we think about it, is that we try to say, how can we create content that will open it up and be much more interesting, but looking at it the lens that it will not alienate you know, take away from that core. But it is really, really tough. And then, you know, it's, this is alchemy. This is not something that you can scientifically say, hey, there's the perfect right. way to do it. Uh, but I think, again, if, if you don't go in with that mindset at a starting book gate, you put yourself in a very difficult situation because you may, if you just go for the fans, that's great, but you're not really then broadening the long-term potential of what that content could be. And so you, you really almost have to push yourself uh, and I know the team was pushed in a lot of ways on this when we'd have conversations about it, uh, and hope you get that balance right. Yeah, I think 100% agree. I, I think it's really understanding your core audience first and understanding what they'll enjoy, and then you create the, the content at the highest level of quality that you can for that audience, but you're not exclusive to them. You're not telling like a lot of inside jokes uh, with that audience. You're trying to make it very approachable by as many people as possible. Um, Last of Us, we're going to probably name check that a lot, uh, is a great example of that. I think uh, my dad watches that show. He has no idea it's a video game, right? He just loves zombie shows, and this is a great zombie show for him, and it's high quality, and that's what drew him in. He's never going to play the game, but he gets to experience this IP in a different way, um, and, and it broadens the appeal of that IP. I think the one thing, too, is it's probably tougher with animation, because in live action, you can bring a lot of name talent to those which in and of itself, you know, for my wife, Pedro Pascal, broadens the audience for Last of Us, right? And so uh, I think that, but that's tougher than it with animation, right? And so I think that's part of the kind of, again, challenge of what we're trying to do here. Yeah, maybe, Jay, do you have some examples of in, again, no spoilers, but um, in this raid adaptation of, of things that you put in that both were making sure there weren't so many inside references that 
you know, more people could understand while also still maybe having some Easter eggs for the existing fans? Oh, yeah. Um, just like in The Last of Us, how there's a lot of Easter eggs that are thrown in there that you won't notice. I mean, they're not going to beat you over the head. The same thing we did in, in this show is that there's quite a bit of Easter eggs if you look. Um, but if you don't, you know, like if my parents watch it, they're just going to look at, they're just going to see a fantasy show. And, you know, and, and I think... The way that, that you adapt something, like I said, is you have to look at it from, number one, um, the fan standpoint, and number two, from my point of view as the director, I have to look at it, okay, what am I bringing new to this genre as well as this story of these characters? Uh, what are the stories that I like? You know, is there a love story? Is there a story of you know, somebody who falls from grace? Or what are the kind of things, core things that I want to bring to the table that's not necessarily inherent in the game? Um, and then what I try to do after that is, okay, now what do I do that's not cliche or hasn't already been done before and try to you know, do a little spin on it and do it all within five minutes. Um, and that's kind of the, the kind of balancing act that I have to do. But I think at its core, I think we're at a, po at a point in time where authenticity the audience wants, right? Uh, no longer are we in the old days where the X-Men can't wear their costumes. They, they're not wearing, they have to wear leathers because people wearing spandex isn't, you know, uh, the thing. But nowadays people want that. People want that authenticity. And I think as fans, we want that. Like you watch a show called Dungeons and Dragons, there has to be a dragon in it, right? Uh, and there should be classes. And I think that's the same thing with what we're doing with the series is that we're trying to keep it authentic to what, what was in the, the core game itself. Yeah, actually thinking about how studio executives, um, sort of like the timeline or the transformation of how Hollywood has been thinking about these adaptations, this could be for anyone on this panel, but maybe specifically Derek, um, what, how have you noticed uh, the mindset maybe shift in your conversations with some of these studio execs in thinking about um, going from like, okay, we got to make our money back on this movie, so we got to make sure enough people are watching it and it's successful, versus thinking about this as an opportunity to honor the IP and, and make something that's actually meaningful. Yeah, I think um, it, it's interesting. It, it really depends on the origin of sort of who's uh, behind it. Like, Riot was the one that made Arcane, and of course, they're doing something that's very specific to their audience, and they're doing something at a very high quality level because everything they do is at a high quality level. And they don't have to worry about an executive coming in and say like, oh, we, meddling essentially, right? They can make the game or the show that they want to make uh, based on their game. But I think much like Jay said, you know, when they made X-Men, it was like, oh, we got to put them in black leather because the Matrix is popular. And if we put them in spandex, everyone will reject it. I think they, executives now understand that the audience is there, right? The audience wants to see something that is authentic and feels and looks uh, like the original. And so they're, they're only meddling insofar as they can make sure that it, it is uh, a worthy investment. But you can see in Mario, right, the new Mario movie, the amount of care that has been taken into making that feel like Mario. Uh, and all the little, just in the two preview trailers that they've shown, all the little Easter eggs that are in that. Uh, it's, it's clear uh, that they're comfortable now sort of taking that, you know, quote unquote risk of making something for that core game audience. Um, and I think we're going to see that more and more as Hollywood sort of wakes up to the fact that there are three billion, soon to be four billion gamers in the world. Uh, and, and games are surpassing every other uh, form of uh, media and entertainment. And so they will want to tap into that, and they'll want to tap into the authenticity and that audience. I think the other thing, too, is that the, 
available distribution channels for this content have risen dramatically, yeah. right? So that's that's changed the whole dynamic in terms of content versus distributor. I mean, when when the first video game properties came out, no one thought about television, and it was primarily through film. You know, we're doing ten five-minute episodes on YouTube and 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 uh, various other you know uh, free to play uh, free uh, platforms. Uh, the dynamic now has changed incredibly where you can control your own distribution and decide, hey, we're going to go do it ourselves, or you can go work with other you know, larger uh, players on the streaming side or go back to traditional, like an HBO, which is about as traditional as you can get. And so, so it, I think that's changed the dynamic where then the content provider has a lot more flexibility to decide what it is they really want to do and how, what are their goals and how do they want to achieve that than just saying, okay, let's go monetize this piece of IP and see what happens. Right. Actually, to that point, you guys picked YouTube. You're releasing this for free based on the teaser and sneak peek I saw. You know, this is not by any means a cheap production, I think. Uh, why did you want to give it away for free, essentially, and not put it behind paywall? Because I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, no uh, I, I think the, the biggest reason was, number one, we, we've leveraged YouTube uh, as a great platform for us helping advertise and market our games. I mean, that's a place where we have a large YouTube audience already, so we're kind of preaching to the choir there with the ability to develop this content. Uh, two is that, again, we felt the right way to do this initially was to get it out there in free so it was accessible to the audience, that this wasn't something that was uh, kind of an inside Hollywood thing that you had to be a subscriber to X to know that this was the place to go. You know, long term, would we explore that? You know, sure, we've, we've already had folks coming to us and talking to us about it, but, you know, we want to stay true to this now and, and, and see where this plays out and then make some decisions based upon that. Uh, and again, it, I, I kind of like having that flexibility to be able to do that because, you know, 10 years ago, you couldn't. You know, you could not do something like this and just say, oh, we're only going to do it uh, in, in traditional film or television. I think the third thing is, is the way you finance one of these now, is you can look at it not just in terms of what it does as a show, but what are the marketing benefits that we get back to the game itself. You know, we, we as a company, spend an enormous amount of marketing dollars on RAID on a monthly basis. Actually, if you look at the cost of this show, it's relatively small compared to the amount of marketing. Now, some of you who know raid marketing are probably sick of raid marketing and saying, if I see one more ad, I'm going to go crazy, right? So maybe some ways this is a way to help supplement that and maybe reduce our traditional marketing down so we can do more things like this as well. So we're we looking at it through both lens. We don't know what's going to work, and we're going to learn and see, see how it plays out. Right. I think it's really important to meet your consumer where they are. Right? Like if you have a big YouTube following, that's where you should put content, even if it's not the full content. It's like understanding your audience fundamentally is really important um, and, and understanding where they like to consume media. Yeah. Do you feel like this might be a, a newer trend of perhaps game studios following a model like this and putting an adaptation for free on a, on a platform like YouTube? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I think it... The, the adaptation is, is just one part of the story, right? You're, you're trying to provide content that your, your audience is going to love, hopefully, and you want to put it where uh, they, they hang out, uh, just like, like anything. Um, and I think the way that, as, as Mike said, like the way you think about like linear adaptation or content generally has really changed because there is so much more flexibility where to distribute it. And it doesn't have to be... It can be shorter than five minutes. It can be any any sort of length from you know 
hour-long television episodes to five minutes to, to TikTok videos, right? It's really just about creating content that your consumer base is going to enjoy that sort of feeds back into to the loop uh, for, for the game itself. Five minutes seems like a tricky time frame to deal with. Yeah. I mean, it's neither here nor there. It's not really short form, but it's not long form either. I mean, at what point, I guess, did you know this was going to be released on YouTube, and did that change sort of the way that you approached the, uh, the production of, of the series? Um, I think we didn't really have a plan of where it was going to go until much later in the, in the production. All I knew is that we had five minutes to play with, um, but we weren't limited. Like, normally if I'm working on a project, it'd be, okay, this is PG-13, or this is for kids, um, and I have to work around those boundaries. So, I mean, clearly I couldn't pitch that to Disney and say, hey, Disney, you want to put this on your, you know, Disney XD or something? Yeah, they wouldn't go for that. So I think early on we knew that we were going to be doing something that was at least PG-13, you know, um, still have an edge, but it's not going to be too hardcore that, you know, uh, younger audiences couldn't accept, couldn't like uh, enjoy it, um, but we wanted to just tell really strong stories. But I think that's where the um, the balance is, right? It's something that's producible, right, with the budget that's given. Because I wish I had a same budget as Arcane, because um, I would have been just amazing. Never say never. Yeah, uh, but you know, of course, you know, we we had you know top quality animators at, at an amazing animation studio in Paris that's doing the animation. Um, and the show is really high quality. So working around those boundaries, I think, you know, it's one thing to have it look right. It's one thing to have good action sequences. But at its core, you need to have a good story. Um, five minutes is tough because, you know, you literally have a, you know, setup and a payoff, and that's all you've got. Then you run credits. Um, but again, I think for a series, a limited series of, like what we're doing here is a matter of, just giving you guys a taste of what could be, and then hopefully, you know, the market will will want something that's more long form. I mean, I'd love to do this as more 45-minute episodes, right? Something that's a little more Game of Thrones, that kind of thing. That way, in that in that in that kind of format, we can make it feel much more epic and much more like you're watching a Lord of the Rings or something uh, that is that is appropriate for this for this particular IP. Because I think there's so much. I mean, there's 700 plus characters now, um, and each one has its own backstory and how to connect them into the universe and and figuring out all of their like motivations and and what their backstories are. I think there's a lot to mine, um, and I think the. The trick is, is again, trying to adapt in such a way that, I mean, all of you guys can enjoy it. Yeah, so, uh, Michael, when are you going to give the green light for the 45-minute version? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, that's a much different budget. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I guess my other way of asking that question is, at what point will you know this is a success? You know, what, what are you looking for um, once well, the series I, I, is released? I mean, it sounds kind of uh, simple, but... Number one, we're going to hear it directly from the Raid fans. I mean, they are not shy. They will tell us immediately uh, once it comes out uh, how they like about it. And then number two, I think, is, you know, how many views we get. And, and what we have found is the vir virality of the Raid fans and within YouTube and other free platforms talking about it in and of itself will, will prove it's a success or not. Uh, and so, so those are really the two factors that we'll look at. Uh, and we're hopeful that... Again, it, it's, it's Hollywood, there's no guarantees, it may not work out, but uh, we believe that it takes this kind of courage and, and uh, innovation to try to move the needle, and you're gonna have to take some risks, and, and that's what we wanna do here. 
Yeah, so it's my understanding that this series for now, at least, is being released only in English? Yeah, well, yes and no, because many of you know that on YouTube you can do, uh, uh, very easily change the language on some of the videos there if you want. And so we're, we're looking at ways that we can really leverage that, because the raid audience is very broad around the, around the world. Uh, and, you know, our sense is that there could be uh, uh, other things that we could do in certain kind of local markets if there's interest. Uh, you know, we were uh, looking at launching RAID in, in other markets that currently it's not available in, and that this could be a really good way to drive that uh, marketing of the new content there as well. Yeah, because I was curious if the YouTube distribution strategy kind of fed into how you were hoping to reach international markets, because for the most part, a lot of countries have YouTube and not everyone has a Netflix or, or no Disney Plus. No question. I think, you know, the, the interesting thing about YouTube, and, and quite frankly, all free streaming platforms is the whole idea of windowing is kind of out the window, right? You're, you're launching global on day one, and, uh, and, and in some ways that puts a lot of pressure on you in terms of ensuring that there's a broad view. But one, one of the things that, at least some of the data that I've looked at, I actually just went to a presentation, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Mr. Beast, this guy <laughs> on YouTube, and I, I went to a presentation, he was saying that He's entirely in English, and he's pretty American, you know, in terms of who he is. But about two-thirds of his audience is international, and in many countries, they don't, you would not think English is the language. But because the content resonates, and because English is so widely, you know, used around the world, that the content works, guess what? It works in English in a lot of these other countries, too. So that's kind of our hope here, that we have a little bit of that same uh, impact here with this show. All right, I wanted to take a step back to look a little bit more broadly at the games industry, but before we do, Jay, was there anything that I missed that I should have asked you about about the series that you want fans to, to keep an eye out for? Um, I, do. I don't know. I mean, I would just say that I hope you guys watch it and enjoy it, and hopefully this could lead to, you know, um, bigger and better things. Uh, right, Mike? Let's do a 45-minute mm -hmm. series. We're going to hold you to that. <laughs> Uh, again, I think it, this is a love letter. This is my love letter to the game, um, and you know, in five minutes increments. Uh, and I hope, you know, as a fan and as a director and, and as somebody who um, has a voice trying to do something different in this industry, hopefully you guys can kind of see what I'm trying to do with the limited format that I've got. Um, I think that's all I can say is just hopefully you guys like it and understand that I'm a fan too. So, you know, if you want my job, you can come over and pick up a pencil and help me draw this thing. Uh, and uh, yeah, and that's really all I would just say. Hopefully so you guys. where should people send their resumes? Uh, I'm in Glendale, so my studio's in Glendale. So if you want to move, come on down or all come right. on up from here. Well, you heard it here first. <laughs> All right, so um, stepping back again, as I was saying to you, we'll, we'll touch on a little bit more of the game adaptations, which I know we've touched on a little bit more, and then sort of the state of the industry, but The Last of Us was referenced, Dungeons and Dragons, we got the Super Mario's movie, it feels like back to back to back, we're getting a lot of these adaptations. It's not by any means new, we've, we've had ad adaptations in the past before, but is it a mere coincidence that these are all coming around and now they seem to be getting more critical attention or they seem to be more, um, critics are enjoying it and fans are enjoying it? No, I don't think that's coincidence. I, I think that you could sort of see the writing on the wall. There, there are a couple of, of uh, good indicators, right? The Witcher overperformed on Netflix. Uh, the Sonic movies, which were of, they were okay, but they overperformed at the box office. Even under, Uncharted uh, overperformed. And so some of these things, uh, 
that, that everyone had been watching sort of knew, hey, if, if these indicators continue to, to exhibit the fact that video game IP is, is strong and, and overperforms, we knew the funnel for new adaptations would get pretty wide pretty quickly. Uh, Castlevania should be on there as well, another animated one. Um, so they all sort of overperformed, and that's when I think the sort of machine went into overdrive. Uh, we now have 60 plus, 60 that have been announced, uh, adaptations that are sort of in the pipeline for Netflix and HBO and, and, and other sort of traditional uh, streamers and, and networks um, and film studios. And I think we're going to see this sort of huge um, dip into video game IP continue for the next 5, 10, 15 years. Again, like we saw with comic books that have been so powerful in, in sort of the current media landscape, I think we're going to see a shift a little bit towards video games. I think it's not going to be as monolithic as uh, comic books where you have sort of like uh, Marvel and DC taking most of the air out of the room. I think you're going to see a lot more opportunity with uh, individual uh, studios creating really compelling IP uh, and being able to leverage that into to linear adaptations. Yeah. And, and finally, I'll say, like, we're going to see it on a bunch of different platforms. Uh, so we will be surrounded by it for, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I'm sure that's great news for you as well. <laughs> um, I, this actually reminds me of something that I think about a lot. Um, you know, I cover digital media for THR, and I cover a lot of the podcast industry as well. And similarly in that industry, there, there is the conversation about adapting shows into film and TV and kind of the balance of... Uh, our concerns about creators perhaps getting into creating a podcast specifically with the intention of getting a, an adaptation. And I feel perhaps maybe in the video game industry that could be a similar concern of you see these flashy adaptations, there's a lot of money attached to that. Maybe some smaller developers, they feel like this is my way in to get an adaptation. And I guess how do you like talk to clients? Like disabuse you of any yeah. <laughs> so, that's going to happen. So, uh, the, the amazing thing about the game business is it's very, very clear as to whether a game is successful or not. You, mm -hmm. you learn incredibly quickly as you look at the data and the KPIs of whether a game is going to work or not. And in that world, if anyone was creating a game for the sole purpose of an adaptation, it probably wouldn't then work as a game itself, which is mm -hmm. the most important thing. And, and in particular, remember in the mobile game space, uh, that's free to play. And so the success of that game is people wanting to pay extra for various powers or abilities to do various things. And so if you don't do a good job of creating that kind of gameplay, uh, you're going to be unsuccessful and you'll never get an adaptation then as a result of that. So, so that's really important. Number two is that uh, it's getting tougher and tougher to break through new games. If, if you look at the, what's happening in the business overall is last year, there were only seven new games that hit the top 100 of mobile games here in the US, and the top one of that seven was like number 75. And that's for two reasons. Number one, uh, all of us in the industry are doing a much better job of keeping our own customers, giving them more content. The word that you guys might hear a lot is called live ops, uh, and we're in terms of providing more content, promotions, features, and so forth. So as a result, the switching cost for someone to leave a game that they really love to a new game has really risen a lot. And then number two, which was touched upon earlier, is that marketing has become a lot more difficult. It used to be in the business that you could create a really great game, just throw, the, throw it over to the marketing team, 
they had pinpoint marketing. They could say, okay, we know exactly what kind of game Jay's going to like, and we're going to give him that ad, and he's going to then download this game. It's become a lot more expensive to do that, number one. And number two is because of some of the privacy changes you know, initiated by Apple and the IDFA changes, it's made it more difficult to do that. So, so as a result, you're really developing games around their ability to be successful and to differentiate and be unique in the games business. If by chance it, it develops into a brand that you think you can develop more into, that's great. That's, that's fantastic, but I would never, ever uh, hope that our teams were developing games for the sole purpose of that, because I think it'd be a recipe for never having a successful game as a yeah, result. Yeah, and back to the idea that audiences are smart and they'll be able to sniff that out. Um, with the uh, issue of, I guess, discoverability, the great thing is there's so many games out there now, especially in mobile, um, but with that it makes it difficult for a fan like Jay, for example, to, to find something that will resonate with him just because there's a lot to yep. sift through, just look at the App Store today, and I, I I can't keep up with all the games there. So, how are studios and maybe also some of your clients, Derek, um, thinking about making sure their game kind of cuts through the noise and is reaching audiences when there's just so much content out there? Uh, honestly, it's it's why we're up here. It's it's adaptations, right? I think right now a lot of my clients in the game space are are thinking specifically very early on how they can market their title in a non-traditional way. So not necessarily performance marketing, but trying to find an audience in uh, through uh, outreach in linear media and getting people excited about the worlds and the characters uh, and inviting people in to hopefully come into the game. So it's not just traditional performance marketing. You have to be much broader in, in how you try to reach an audience. Um, and I think the, the gambit here is that if you get attached to characters and worlds, you want to stay in that with that character and in that world for a long time. Um, and I think that's sort of borne out over time. I think the, the franchises that are still popular in film and television have very deep um, characters, very deep worlds, and we're still talking about them. Star Wars, uh, all the Marvel uh, uh, worlds, and, and even things as simple as Transformers start off as like, you know, pieces of plastic, but they attach narrative to it. People got attached to them and we're still talking about them 40 years later as if they're current uh, pieces of IP. Yeah. So a, a couple things in the game space that's really changed. It used to be that you could take a game concept, kind of copy it and do something very similar, maybe make it a little differentiated and get it out quickly and be successful at that. Those days are over now, right? Because, because the bar has risen so high to break through with the successful mobile game. So you can't really do that. You have to create something very unique and differentiated that's going to be compelling for people, again, to switch the game that they're playing all the time or the two games that they're playing into something else. It, it, it's, a, it's a bit like the movie business has become, right? That you have to really kind of go big or go home, home so to speak. So that, that's number one. Uh, number two is, you know, if you do something derivative like a sequel or something new, you've got to really believe that it's going to be differentiated enough from the existing game that you don't cannibalize the existing game. It's one of the reasons there's not been a raid two is we're still developing a lot of new content within that raid environment that we don't feel necessary to create a whole new game just yet because we'd be afraid that all we'd be doing is taking all the raid fans from one game to another game. We wouldn't be broadening the audience for that. And so, so that, that makes it difficult, much different than, say, film or television where you have a certain run and then, okay, now we're going to the next one. Uh, and so as a result, it, it's become increasingly tougher. 
you know, we have within our pipeline six new games we're launching this year. We're excited about every one, every one of them. If we're lucky, two of them will be successful. That's that's how tough it's a it's a real you know hit or miss kind of business. But uh, we have great teams. We have great quality talent across the world that are working on our projects. And I think to be successful, you've got to be able to really think like that and, and really push yourselves to push the envelope. Otherwise. You, you'll end up just, you know, depending on your own franchises, which is great, but you won't be able to then grow the business uh, in the way that it needs to. We're going to open up for questions in one minute. Before we do that, though, I want to end on sort of like a, a nice open-ended question for everyone on this panel. We've got an avid player, a creative, we've got an executive, we've got an agent represented here. Where do you hope to see the gaming industry go in the next few years? What do you, what do you want to see happen next? Why don't we start maybe with Jay as the player? Uh, more adaptations where they can hire me? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I know. I, I think I think what we're seeing with at least with the adaptations we're seeing with Dungeons and Dragons and The Last of Us and a lot of the new stuff. Uh, like I said, there's this authenticity. I think that I, you know, as a fan, that I really like. You know, with even with you know superhero films and all the things that I love as a kid uh, that was geeky at the time or nerdish is all kind of you know it's all at the forefront. All the games that I played. So I think that you know. All of that stuff is being taken more seriously now, and again, I think that's where Hollywood and all, all these other adaptations have to just understand that there's an authenticity about it. Because again, us fans, we've had to sit through really bad adaptations. You know, I'm still waiting for a really good Resident Evil adaptation, um, or even a Monster Hunter. Uh, but uh, you know, I think as I'm getting older, I play less and less games, so the, the things that I play are very few and far between. And so I want to have something that when I jump into it, I can dive in all the way and, 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 under, and really love it because it's, it's adapting something that I love, right? If it's not that, then, you know, like, I, I was around when the He-Man movie came out, and I was very devastated that it happened on Earth, and it didn't have anything to do with Eternia, and, and Dolph Lundgren was just running around, and it's like that kind of stuff that, like, as a kid, I, w I saw that, and I was like, why aren't they doing this you know, the way that it should be, and then now that I'm an adult and I'm in a position to actually do it, I, I, you know, I have to do it because I see the things that, that were, have been done, you know, differently than what I would have done, and I'm sure in the future people are going to look at my work and say I would have done it differently because Jay was too old or whatever, but, uh, but again, this is my shot at, at adapting things, and again, I've been very fortunate. I've done Marvel, DC, everything. I've done tons of things, Transformers, all across my career. And, uh, and I still have fun. I, I still, because uh, again, I, I approach it as a fan. That's, that's my biggest thing. Michael? So the uh, overall gaming business, if you include mo mobile, console, and uh, PC, is bigger than the film and television business today. And I think in two years, Mickey Mouse will be in the public domain. Ooh. So we are just in the early, early stages of what it means IP in the gaming business. We have just really begun when you think about it. And so I look at the future, you know, Raid's only four years old, that, that I believe that 25 years from now, a significant portion of IP will be coming from gaming experiences. I just see that with my own son, who has much more interest in playing games than he does watching television or any kind of digital, you know, shows. And that I think that's just going to extrapolate long term. So I think the future for gaming is very bright. I also think that there's going to be a lot of uh, merging of platforms, right? Where someone, the difference between a mobile game and a 
TV experience game on a you know on a bigger screen is going to kind of melt away. You'll play in both of those worlds, and you may watch the animated or, or show as well as while you're doing that on the side. That all this kind of comes together uh, as as we as consumers use these various platforms in different ways, but for the most part, consuming media. Uh, that that's just going to continue in a major way for us. Yeah, I mean, when I started in this industry, it was considered a cottage industry. Right? It, they were creating really interesting content, but you had a few hundred million participants in that content. And now, like I said before, it's, it's over three billion, soon, soon to be four billion. Um, and, and I think the importance of video games sort of in the overall entertainment industry will continue to grow. It's bigger, as, as Mike said, is film, bigger than film and television. I think bigger than film, television, and music combined. Or if not, it will be uh, soon. And it also has become sort of the centerpiece for consumption of entertainment. Um, if you look at uh, you know, Gen Z, anyone between the ages of, of 11 and 40, actually, 90% uh, of those individuals consider themselves gamers. Um, you look at Gen Z's consumption patterns, 25% of them, of their time is spent playing video games. So it's really become the cornerstone of sort of an overall entertainment uh, experience, and I think it will just continue to grow. And, and as Mike said, it will throw off lot, lots of different opportunities, including linear adaptations. Uh, you know, we're talking about licensing, uh, you know, licensing opportunities, uh, and it will continue to uh, solidify itself as sort of the centerpiece of entertainment. All right, turning to the audience now. Anyone have questions for our lovely panelists? Right here in the front, or we can line up right behind this mic, right? Sure. Yeah. There you go. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah, cool. It is. So I'm really excited that mobile specifically is adapting to IP instead of like the other way around. Um, but I'm kind of curious how like other KPIs beyond sort of user acquisition influence sort of the creative direction of the show, or vice versa, how the show is influencing some of the features or content developed for the game? Good question. Go ahead, Go ahead Mike, you want to do it? Well, so one of the things that we, I wanted to do is uh, take existing characters and put them in the show, but we also have some new um, heroes that we created that will be coming out when the episode comes out. So you'll see ones that, so on the day that it comes out, I believe, Mike, that you'll be able to play it in game. So, and there are some things that, uh, I think when I first started playing, Doom Tower wasn't a part of it, and then when we were crafting the show, I was like, hey, we need a place where there's a lot of monsters. And then that's when Doom Tower came out. I was like, okay, that's perfect. I had no idea what Doom Tower was about, so I had to ask Clary. I'm like, okay, what, what's going on with this? So working with the guys who created was great because they, could show, they showed me kind of a timetable of what's kind of in the future. And if I say any more than that, they'll kill me. But, uh, but the idea is that we, we did try to implement things that, uh, that were going to come in the game by the time this comes out. I was going to say one of the key KPIs when you're looking at a game is the cost per install, how much you're spending in marketing, how much that costs. If the game is working to help develop the overall brand and do things like this, we should see that come down, right? Because we're getting more organic or people just going to go play the game. If it stays the same, maybe that's not as big an impact. And so again, that's one of the things that we will be looking at to see what's the connection between the game itself and the show. But to be clear, if there is never any connection, that's okay. Because we feel like we're building a great property and extending the brand. If that happens, that's, o that's okay too. We will, we will be happy with that as well. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you.
Thank you for the panel. Um, um, we're talking about the size of the video game and the gaming industry, and you know, kind of half of it is casual games. Um, and this is for Michael and Ray. Um, casual games don't really have characters with arcs. You know, it's like switchers and you know, puzzles and stuff. How could you adapt something like that? How, where, where would you go to adapt from a creative perspective? What would you do? to take one of those IPs into linear storytelling and from on, you know, your management perspective of the uh, French, would you do anything like that? Thanks. Well, I'll just say there is one casual property that, and that's Angry Birds, that did have some kind of yeah, resonating. But the, but the birds have yes. texture, Yes. right? I mean, I think, you, I think, you look at Merge Mansion. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I think what, what you're pointing to is a broader issue in the casual segment. I don't believe there's been as much innovation in that segment from a, from a character storytelling. It's been kind of simplified to a certain level. And as a result, that's why it's getting tougher and tougher to break through a new product in the casual sector because of that. And so a lot of the games that we're developing casual, we're trying to figure out what can we do more than just a match three mechanic or merge mechanic. What kind of characters and so forth can we build? If, if you check out one of our games, Merge Gardens that we've just launched, there's a whole character element to it, partially because of what you're saying, is to try to bring people in a bit more than it just being, okay, here's a great mechanic and people are gonna play it in a, in a very casual way. Thank you. Yeah, and I think, any, it, like just storytelling-wise, you need a, a, a good universe and you need to be able to slot in characters. And so that does start with the sort of core IP and you need to start introducing that into the core IP. It doesn't have to be from day one but to continue to sort of leverage your audience and then leverage that audience into film and television or bring more interest back and, and create that connective tissue, you definitely have to find that universe and, and character. Hey, how's it going? Uh, <clears throat> in regards to Pixel United, and uh, you guys are working on a couple different projects, uh, what are your guys's, what are things you guys are excited to work on right now, uh, getting into new games as well as you know, there's a lot of talk about XR, there's a lot of talk about metaverse, and not metaverse just in like the Decentraland aspect, but phys tying in players' real physical worlds to their digital yeah. lifestyle. Yeah. So, uh, you know, clearly we're, our, our pipeline is very much driven off of, right now, the areas that we're in trying to extend new content within those areas. We've got two new mid-core games coming out this year. We've got a, uh, a game uh, in the social casino space that's leveraging a whole new technology we've never used before. And we've got uh, two new casual games, one of which I mentioned was Merge Gardens that's recently released. Uh, again, we're just trying to raise the bar as much as possible in these games to make them meaningful and differentiate the breakthrough. Uh, we have a metaverse game that we're working on in the fashion space very early days trying to see if that works. Uh, we're trying a lot of different kinds of things because uh, we think that innovation is going to be important. I think the difference at Pixel United though is because of our deep portfolio, we can try those little things and not like bet the company on it. Like if it fails, uh, we'll still be able to, uh, to survive. Uh, and I think that gives us a little bit of an advantage to try those various things. Uh, and it's critical then long term in order to, to, uh, to continue to grow and, and again, a very competitive set business. Yeah. Thank you. Hello, how are you doing? In the IP development uh, process, 
uh, gaming has a lot of data that other industries do not have. Uh, how did this uh, give you an advantage and influence in your creative process? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. We have an enormous amount of data. H however, uh, for this particular show, uh, we really didn't want to burden the creators <laughs> with so much data that they wouldn't then take it in the direction that they felt was important from a storytelling standpoint, right? We could have given them so much data that it would have kind of been garbage in, garbage out, right? You have so much, you just get kind of inundated that. I think the one piece of data that we are very strong about is we know like our customer. We know what they like, what they don't like. And so we were able more to feed information back to Jay, I think, based upon that than throwing a lot of data at him and yeah. the team as part of that. Is that fair, I think? Yeah, and I mean, the one thing that helped is that the game itself, you know, there are models in the game. So from a production standpoint, we could start from the character models. It is a 3D show. So we asked Playroom, can you send over those models? Of course, they're a little bit lower res than what you see here. But they also have some really amazing um, commercials that they did, which are way too high res than for what we could do in a show. But we asked them to just send everything. And then we went through all of the, the assets, uh, a lot of the locations, any artwork that we, would get, we were going to have in the series. We asked Plarium if there was anything. If there was anything, that we'd create it. But we always used them as a basis to say, hey, send us whatever you can of these particular things and we will extrapolate from it. And it, uh, again, it's most of these kind of 3D shows, you have to start from zero. Like everything's gotta be built from nothing. So by having these character designs that already have a strong character design and already characters are familiar with, we just basically took it into the next step and just made it where it, you know, it looked like, uh, it's still a little bit stylized, it's not photoreal, but having a starting point from a game company who, have, who has assets was a, was a very good, good starting point. And what's good is that when we finish the series, we then deliver the assets back to them and they can integrate it back into their own pipeline. Thank you. So this one's mostly directed at Derek. Um, kind of from the perspective of how do you categorize something? Uh, Netflix Interactive game shows, are those games or are they television? Netflix Interactive game. They're right on the bubble. Um, and, and probably being on the bubble, they, they probably underperform, right? It's, it's lean in t TV for people that don't want to lean in, or it's uh, lean back TV for people who want to lean in. It just sort of like sits right in the middle, and I think it's a really tough place to be. And I think that we don't see a proliferation of that on a bunch of different platforms because of that. And I think it's probably what Netflix is doing right now is pretty rudimentary as far as like decision making uh, during one of those um, experiences, um, and, and they can get much more creative with it, which hopefully we'll see in the future. Thanks. Hi, all. Uh, thank you for everything. Um, I have a question about kind of the future of IP uh, as it relates to kind of fan fiction and YouTube creators taking kind of parodies and doing fun things with content that they love. Um, is that something that studios and uh, uh, agencies are going to be more supportive of in the future? Um, or that's a bad thing. <laughs> well, uh, if my son showed me one more meme of uh, YouTube content, I think I'd go crazy. Uh, you know, listen, I, I think it's all part of what you have to accept in today's world in terms of vir virality and opening up social media, both the good and the bad of it, right? You can't control it. I think if you try to control it, you're, 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 you're going to fail. And so, you know, I think the key, though, is to continually try to innovate creatively. I mean, one of the things that's happened in the, in the games business is, is 
brand, creative advertising has been kind of a secondary thought. It's really been more about let's just get the information out there and hopefully somebody downloads it. And I think, like we've talked about today, I think that's changing slowly but surely. There, there are more media, brand, marketing people within games businesses. I think they're thinking about ways how can we make sure to protect a brand if it goes too far, especially if, we, if, we, if we've gone too far. And, and uh, I think it's part of a journey. And, and some companies are ahead of others, and, and we're, we're trying to, uh, to stay ahead of the curve on that. Thank you, guys. Hi. Um, I'm curious, are there types of games or like um, from a gameplay loop perspective um, or a narrative development perspective that you think would be ill-suited for development into different uh, media, like uh, TV show, comic books, maybe like, I uh, wouldn't really want to do that with this sort of game. Probably social casino, uh, just yeah. off the top of that would be an area that we probably wouldn't be doing. Although we've had some really good uh, interpretations of that on TV advertising recently that we're pretty excited about. I couldn't really think of an original show uh, in social casino, maybe more of a game show-like thing down the yeah. road, maybe, or something maybe. like that. Uh, that would be casual, too. Hyper casual would yeah. be tough, too, because hyper casual, I mean, the whole goal is to just have it run as quickly as possible, and then it's gone, and it's a new game. So, yeah, you're right about that. Yeah. I don't know, Jay. No, no, I, I think so. I mean, I mean, here's the thing. They made a movie about Tetris, right? Yeah. So I think, I think no matter what, if there's a story behind it, I mean, if you find the right filmmaker or somebody who has a really good idea, you can make a, movie, you can make a story about anything, really. Thanks. I have a question about Overwatch, which has kind of done a lot of interesting um, strategic decisions lately. Um, and I know that they started by producing a lot of this content that was really compelling and really strong. Um, that's fizzled out a little bit. They decided to shut down one and move everyone over to two. And I'm wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about how the industry views that move, how you guys view that move, and just kind of some of the backlash or pros of that move. Actually, I was going to defer to you. I mean, the reason you're, you're, you're still on Raid 1 is because it's a live service game. And, yeah. and I think most live service games, the audience expectation now is that it just continues. You don't have this break, and then you have to repurchase uh, for the same content or slightly different content. And I think that's a little, it's a little tough on your audience when you do that. Um, I, I think it's a little bit of Blizzard trying to figure out where that sweet spot is because they come from sort of more traditional background in, in premium games. And running a life service game is a step uh, away from their, their sort of norm. Um, so, uh, you know, look, the backlash is the, the consumer backlash. And, and ultimately, you, the consumer, decides if they want to continue down that road or not. But I think over time, those games will sort of slip into a more traditional sort of games as a service type model. Yeah, I was going to I completely agree with you. I mean, today we have 250 people in the Ukraine, Poland, and, and Portugal working on Raid, the game itself, full time. And, you know, that's the commitment we have to that particular service long term. And I, I think a lot of the uh, console PC companies don't really have that kind of methodology or understanding. For the same reason, by the way, if somebody said for us, hey, let's go create a console game, we wouldn't have the capability to deliver that overnight, right? So I think that's number one. Number two, in particular on, on Overwatch, I think there was a little bit too much thinking about what's the ancillary, what's the future, what's all these other things versus is it a great experience and can we maintain it? Again, it goes back to what you said before, is if we spend all our time worried about what the ancillary benefits of a game is, we will fail. 
we got to focus on will this game work? Will it be great for fans? Will they love it? Will they want to play it? And then other stuff if that happens, you know, great. But you can't, you can't depend upon that because you'll fail in the process. Thank you. All right, that's all the time we have for today, but thank you so much, everyone, for coming out.